Hello, everybody. It's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're back with just the zoo of us. Your favorite animal review podcast, where we review your favorite animals by rating them out of 10 in effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Christian, are we zoological experts? (laughs) I'm so glad you asked. We are not (laughs) zoological experts. We try to make up for this by finding the most accurate information we can through other expert sources. Mm-hmm. I ended up falling into quite the research rabbit hole mm-hmm. this week. I think you did as well. A little bit. We had yeah. some fun. Dip, dipped the toe in there. <laughs> um, I, I hope everybody had a wonderful holiday. We certainly did. It was very, very busy, um, but everything went very smoothly. Uh, we were very busy, and then we weren't really 100% sure whether we really wanted to to record a new episode this week. And I was like, you know what? I figured I would do an animal that I was like, I feel like I've always heard that these animals are very mysterious and there's not a lot known about them. So maybe I'll do a quick one. And uh, I won't have a ton to say about this animal. And I was so wrong. (laughs) It's the wrongest I've ever been. (laughs) This week, I am talking about the narwhal. Very good. And I'm really excited about this animal because I had been wanting so badly to talk about it. I'd been thinking about it. And thinking, I think about it every year around this time of year when I watch my favorite Christmas movie, Elf. And there is famously a narwhal in the very, very beginning. Famously is maybe not the right word because maybe I'm one of very few people that has really hyper fixated on this particular moment in Elf mm-hmm. when a narwhal emerges from the water and says, Bye, buddy. Hope you find your dad. Yeah. And I really like that narwhal. Yeah. If I had to put money down on what one line from the movie Elf <laughs> Ellen is going to say as it happens, that'd be it. <laughs> Uh, I really like that scene, <laughs> but I really wanted to talk about narwhals. And as I like, as I was thinking about how badly I wanted to talk about narwhals on the show, I got an email from Molly V requesting that we talk about narwhals on the show. And I was like, yes, <laughs> and <laughs> read my mind. Yes, I was so excited. <laughs> an excuse to talk about narwhals. Uh, the narwhal's scientific name is Monodon monoceros. Oh. Uh, and I'm getting my information from a NOAA Ocean Explorer article on the biology and ecology of narwhals. And this is by Dr. Kristen Lydra. Um, I'm also pulling from the Society for Marine Mammalogy and a Smithsonian article titled Native Knowledge of the Narwhal. And that's by Danielle Hall in March of 2020. This article was really useful because it incorporates knowledge from Inuit people. Mm. So Inuit people have been like hunting them and living alongside them for thousands of years and know a lot more than Western science has really documented about their like behavior and ecology and biology. So um, I was really thankful to have access to some articles that put some of that out there on the internet for me to access. That's awesome. Um, Yeah. So if you're not super familiar with what a narwhal is, I've heard a lot of people like recently say that they thought they were cryptids really? um, and didn't actually physically exist. Oh. This is not a cryptid special. This is a real animal <laughs> that you can see and touch. They are a type of whale. So they are a marine mammal. Mm-hmm. They, in adulthood, they can be four to five and a half meters long, which is 13 to 18 feet. 
It's pretty big. Yeah. Not, you know, the biggest whale. It's bigger than dolphins. Big, yeah. Um, but maybe, I don't know, is that in the ballpark of an of a orca? No, they're smaller than orcas. Okay. Much smaller than orcas, typically. Um, but they're also pretty chunky. They're 800 to 1,600 kilograms, which is 1,700 to 3,500 pounds. So they're they're round, <laughs> quite chunky little whales, which makes sense because they live in the Arctic Ocean. Yes. So this is the ocean surrounding the North Pole, not the South. Not so. You will not find them in the South Pole around Antarctica. They're not down there. They're only up north mainly in the Atlantic region. So it sounds like Elf got it right so far. Yes. Because yeah. that was when Buddy was leaving the North Pole yes. to come down to New York City. It's always New York City. <laughs> I didn't catch in that sequence whether they made the error that a lot of media makes of putting penguins in the North Pole. I don't recall. Um, I didn't pay close enough attention to see whether they put penguins up there, but uh, narwhals and penguins, you will not find them. In the same place. It's too much beef. No. <laughs> no, they uh, they have a blood feud. <laughs> so narwhals belong to the taxonomic family Monodontidae. Uh, they share that family with its closest living relative. Do you know what its closest living relative is? I was just thinking I could probably guess what the roots of that word mean. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you probably can. I'm going to go into etymology in just a second. Okay. What do you think is the closest re- living relative to the narwhal? Uh, is it the beluga? It is the beluga. Yeah. They are the only extant members of this family. Okay. On the topic of their relation to beluga whales, there has been at least one beluga narwhal hybrid. Ooh. Yeah, they found a skull of one that, uh, an adult skull that had features of both narwhals and beluga whales. Interesting. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Did they give it a name? Not like a personalized, like, Jeffrey name, but. (laughs) (laughs) No. I mean, I don't think so. You could probably call it a Narluga. Bawal. Yeah. I don't think we're going to let you name the whales. (laughs) No. (laughs) I don't think they're going to be putting you in charge of naming whales anytime soon. One day. So both of these whales, the narwhals and the belugas, belong to a larger group of whales that are called toothed whales. Mm-hmm. We've talked about quite a few on the show before because this group includes orcas, sperm whales, and dolphins. Now, I, I mentioned the scientific name Monodon monoceros. <laughs> this means one tooth, yes, one horn, which is very funny to me. <laughs> the thing of Widowmaker from Overwatch... <laughs> One tooth, one horn. <laughs> See, I was thinking of that movie Drumline. <laughs> I, I don't know. Oh. I, I haven't seen this movie. Wait. In the movie, it's one band, one sound. Oh, <laughs> one tooth, <laughs> one horn. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, so that is, that is what that means. But as far as the common name narwhal, that English word comes from the Old Norse words hmm. nar, which means corpse. And Val, which means whale. And the corpse part of the name is a reference to their coloration. They have a gray, like a gray and white speckled sort of mottled appearance, which combined with their behavior of often uh, floating slowly near the top of the water can cause them to resemble a dead body Mm. floating as if a dead sailor, perhaps. 
So um, they can they can look like corpses, which is where they got their name, <laughs> which may bo- may not bode well for their aesthetic score in this episode. Damn. Whale naming is so morbid. Yeah, to uh, kick things off for rating the narwhal with effectiveness, which for us is physical adaptations, so things built into the animal's body that let it uh, accomplish its goals and do a good job of the things it's trying to do as an animal. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm giving the narwhal a nine out of 10. That's very good. Yeah, which I think I typically do tend to grant high scores to extremophiles, right? If you've got an animal that can live in like a really, really hostile environment, like if it can live and thrive in a place that not a lot of other life can, mm-hmm. I'm definitely going to like give it some <laughs> give it some some bonus points for that. But before we get into that, we got to talk about the tusk, which is for sure kind of their like defining feature yeah. is their tusk. Yeah. Unlike other toothed whales, narwhals don't, their jaws aren't like fully lined with teeth, right? So like how, like an orca or a dolphin, right? They'll have Mm -hmm. teeth kind of like all the way down the jaw. Like pointy cylindrical teeth. Yeah, sure. Uh, They don't have those. Instead, they just have two canine teeth. Okay. That's it. And they poke right out the front. Like they're, they're pointing directly forward. Both of them? Both of them. Yes. Just two canine teeth. I think this is really funny because it's kind of like they took every tooth point they had and just sank it all. (laughs) They're like, no, we don't need all of our teeth. We just need to make our two really, really, really big. (laughs) So what happens is in males, usually but not always, one of the teeth grow out mm-hmm. straight through the front of the mouth kind of like the bobby russo that we talked about a while ago it grows straight out through the lip um and it grows and grows and grows and it twists to form this long thin spiral shaped i'm gonna say horn but horn is in quotes because it's not a horn right. it's a tooth it's a it's a giant tusk and this is really funny because it's kind of like they Voltroned all their teeth together into like one giant mega tooth <laughs> and then just stuck it right out the front. Uh-huh. And I said that usually one tooth does this because sometimes it's two. Oh. Yeah. There's apparently like a one in 500 chance that you can have a double tusked narwhal, hmm. which is not that rare. Right? One in 500? That's not that rare. That's true. And even females can do it sometimes. Oh. Yeah, because sometimes females will grow a tusk too. It's not as common, but they'll sometimes grow it. And there's only been like one skull found, but there has been a skull found of a double-tusked female. Huh. Which feels to me like getting like a double-segmented shiny Dunsparce or something (laughs) like that. Like, it's just astronomically rare but very very cool when it happens um so the tusk grows continuously throughout the narwhal's life and it can reach up to 10 feet long that seems inconvenient it does right doesn't it (laughs) you know what's funny about that Hmm. females have a longer life expectancy than males do it's always something (laughs) the females are more likely to survive longer because they don't have this big giant pike sticking out of their face (laughs) I was thinking about how, like, if they grow, both of the tusks grow out, it's kind of like Geralt from the Adventure Zone. Mm. <laughs> the binocorn. That's what it made me think of. I was kind of hoping it was, like, both teeth growing out, intertwining into each other. Like That would be really cool. Like a helix-type formation. Because, like, the, the one tusk is already spiraling into, right. like, a helix. So if they had both of it going on, that would be just, like, 
totally wild. Mm-hmm. No, that would be cool. It's not like that, unfortunately. But maybe you can submit those notes to the design department and <laughs> see if maybe in the next patch, maybe they'll update that. Reason for suggestion would be very cool. <laughs> would be very cool. <laughs> <laughs> So a lot of people think that the tusk is used for spearing their prey, that mm-hmm. they might kind of like drive the tusk through their prey and then eat it like a shish kebab. Not the case, much like with the blue marlin that we talked about right. some time ago. Because if you think about it, just like with the blue marlin, <laughs> just imagine that a narwhal does spear like a fish or something, which a lot of what they eat is like cod and mm-hmm. um, halibut. Imagine that they did spear it. Then what? <laughs> what are you going to do with it? Then you give it to your friend, Narwhal. You, then... They would have to feed each other, right? <laughs> they would have no other option but to, like, you know, feed each other mm-hmm, with it because they, mm-hmm. they, they don't have hands. That sounds like a team building exercise. Um, They don't do that. So actually, kind of similar to the blue marlin, what they do is they smack it. Mm, okay. Mm. <laughs> so they, they thwack the prey with the tusk to either stun it or just displace it. And then they just suck it right up into their mouth. Bonk. Yeah, they just, they're bonking them, basically. Um, and that comes from drone footage taken of narwhals in 2016. Very cool. So it was actually footage of narwhals hunting, which is kind of difficult to come by because they're usually hunting underneath, like, mm. sheets of ice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of difficult to see them actually doing this. So it's really cool that we, you know, you get to to see it in action and if you think about it like the tusk can't be that important to their hunting strategy because then the females would need it too right like the fact that only the males have it suggests that it's not survival based right like they don't need it to survive Mm -hmm. and in fact even the females do better because they live longer (laughs) so like the thing's kind of dragging them down at this point Uh (laughs) it's a maladaptive sort of thing almost Mm -hmm. but it's not pointless it's not just there for show I mean, it's partially there for show because females seem to like it. Like with a lot of animals that have this like continually growing feature. So we talked about this with like Inca turns, right? With the with the feathers on the face. The longer it grows, it shows your longevity, right? right. It shows like you've been alive a really long time. You're good at not dying. <laughs> so that's like part of it, but that's not all it's for. One of the most surprising things about the narwhal's tusk that I had no clue is that it is extremely sensitive. You, you're nodding like you knew this. Did, well, were you keeping this from me? No, this whole time I was thinking, man, what if they have temperature sensitivity in they their teeth? They have temperature sensitivity in it. <laughs> they don't have Sensodyne. So here's the... So, oh, God. I So I have to brush with Sensodyne, and I'm so glad I'm not a narwhal, because this sounds like a nightmare. It gets worse. Uh-huh. The whole tusk is lined with a network of millions of nerve endings. Of course. So it's, I saw it described, and I hate to use this phrase, but I have to use it anyway, as an inside out tooth. Don't like that. No, it's horrible. <laughs> this is terrible. So how our teeth have all the sensitive porous pulp on the inside. Mm-hmm. It's encased in this rigid structure. Theirs is the opposite of that. The tube down the middle of the tusk is the hard, rigid part. And then it's surrounded by a sensitive, porous, like, pulp. So it's actually kind of, like, flexible and soft, which is a little bit unsettling, I think. (laughs) Seems ill-advised. Yes, especially to have 
it also be 10 feet long and sticking out of the front of your face. That's just setting yourself up for a lifetime of pain. <laughs> I think. I mean, surely, right? The, the neurological side of it has to dial back the sensitivity well, so relative here's the, to our own, I suppose. Well, so here's the thing. The nerve endings are sending signals to the brain mm-hmm. about things like temperature and salinity and things like, like they're actively like using it to process information about the water around them. And this, by the way, comes from the paper uh, Sensory Ability in the Narwhal Tooth Organ System. And that's by Martin T. Nuia. Um, And that was published in the Anatomical Record in 2014. And I just want to take a quick, slight detour to talk about the methodology in this paper. Mm. Because the way they tested this was nuts. Oh? (laughs) Because narwhals are famously nigh impossible to keep in captivity. Because of their, like, seasonal migration, they need, like, deep, cold water that they... Has it been attempted? I mean, probably, but I certainly have never heard of a narwhal being successfully kept in a zoo. Hmm. But anyway, since they're very difficult to keep in captivity, they had to study (laughs) narwhals in the wild. Yeah. And what they did was they made a tusk jacket out of acrylic tube and foam for like the end. Mm -hmm. They hooked it up. They hooked this, this tube up to a little hose and then caught some wild narwhals. They hooked them up to electrodes to monitor their, like, heart rate. Mm-hmm. They put the little... And this is a quote directly from the paper. They said, After a few minutes of heart monitoring, the tusk jacket was attached at or near the base of the tusk, and alternating solutions of high salt and fresh water were injected into the tusk jacket. Oh, okay. Not into the tusk. Oof. No, into the jacket. So just... <laughs> Just like filling this tube around the tusk uh-huh, uh-huh. with really salty or not salty water back and forth and seeing what the narwhal did or how the narwhal responded. Uh-huh. And they showed a strong correlation between like when the salinity of the water changed, the narwhal's heart rate changed in response to it. Hmm. Can you imagine trying to propose this research? <laughs> like, here's what we want to do. We want to slap a tube on narwhals. Just hook up an EKG to a narwhal. No big deal. No, it's absolutely just ridiculous. Apparently, they only did this for 30 minutes at a time. Mm -hmm. So, like, after 30 minutes, they would take everything off and let the narwhal go on about their business to avoid, like, overstressing them. So, I just found that very fascinating how they studied the, like, sensory perception of the narwhal's tusk. Um, So narwhals do use their tusks socially to determine hierarchy, much in the way that like deer use their antlers, right? We see Mm. this a lot with, or like elephants use their tusk, right? Like we see this with animals that have these big exaggerated features. They'll kind of use this socially. So males will cross their tusks together to kind of duel for like dominance of the pod. And actually scientists that are researching the sensory function of the tusk think that when they do this, like crossing their tusks together, they may actually be communicating. So they may be kind of conveying the water that they have recently swam through Mm. and like in some way exposing the other narwhal to that water and basically like showing the other narwhal like this is where i've been like maybe i just came from some really fresh water like kind of swapping stories basically Mm -hmm. which is very interesting that obviously that hasn't like been confirmed but sure i thought it was funny like this like if they're swapping information about water by like 
rubbing water onto each other's tusks. It kind of reminds me of like if you come home from like a barbecue restaurant and you uh, smell really strongly of like a smoker and barbecue sauce, <laughs> right? And then you come home and your partner's like, where you been? <laughs> Where'd you go for dinner? I wonder if it makes a sound like how if you took two like bumpy sticks and rubbed them together. Yeah, for sure. Oh, like, like the kids' musical wooden sticks? Yeah. Yeah, probably it sounds just like that, too. (laughs) (laughs) I think sometimes people like to add an air of mystery and be like, nobody knows why the narwhal has this tusk. Or like, it's a mystery to science why narwhals have this tusk. It's like you're never going to get one answer, right? It probably serves multiple purposes. Uh And there's not just one reason why it has a tusk. It, It fulfills a lot of purposes. Another thing that narwhals do, like another really impressive physical adaptation they have is for diving. They are excellent divers. They can dive as deep as 1,800 meters, uh, which is about 5,900 feet, which is over a mile. Um, This puts them all the way down in the twilight zone, which is the zone of the ocean where less than 1% of daylight can reach. So it is very, very dark. Very, very cold. And these dives can last for up to 25 minutes. Wow. So they can be down in the water for a very, very long time. And when you're diving this deep and you are a mammal, there are some factors you need to account for. Mostly water pressure and oxygen retention. If you're a mammal, you need to breathe, but you also need to be able to survive in water pressure that's much, much higher than you're used to at the surface. So narwhals have some interesting adaptations to their body that let them not die when they dive into the twilight zone. Hmm. I gotta say, I learned all of this stuff from a really, really great post by Dr. Kristen Lydra on her website. She is a marine mammal biologist and principal scientist at the University of Washington's Polar Science Center. First of all, their rib cage is flexible like bendy and, sure. and stretchy so you can you can squeeze them which is what the water's doing when you dive that far into the water the water's kind of squeezing your body mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. but their rib cage flexes so that when they're that deep under the water their bones don't snap which would suck yeah if they did. yeah you don't want your bones snapping down there you need those another thing is that their muscles can carry way more oxygen than most other mammals. And that's because they have a really high amount of this oxygen binding protein called myoglobin. So it's a protein in the muscles that in in their muscles, they just have tons more myoglobin than, than like you or I do. Mm-hmm. So their actual muscles can just absorb tons and tons of oxygen and hold on to it, which helps them be able to hold their breath for such incredible amounts of time. Mm-hmm. So they can dive for a really long time and cover lots of distance, which they need as they're swimming below sea ice where they're not going to be able to surface for air very frequently. Very interesting. I I really only docked the one point because that tusk can break off and that seems really painful. Yeah. (laughs) I hate that for them. Does it grow back? Yeah. Yeah. The tusk grows continuously throughout life. Oh. So it'll come back. So is it like a guarantee that at some point it will break? No, not I mean not necessarily. It's it's not the sort of thing where it just like naturally sheds, right? Not like antlers or something. It's just it can break off because it's, of how like long and thin it is. As longer it gets, it seems like the more likely it is something's going to happen to, yeah. to break it. Yeah, I mean that just seems like there's easier ways 
so yeah, just in very interesting ways that they have designed themselves to to thrive in a place where not a lot of other things can live, which is very helpful because if you can adapt to survive in a hostile environment, that means you're facing less competition, fewer mm-hmm. predators. Um, it's just all around going to be beneficial to you if you can, if you can survive somewhere others can't. Right. Built different. <laughs> Next up for ingenuity for the narwhal, which for us is like behavioral adaptations, things they're actually doing to like solve problems, thrive, things like that. I'm giving the narwhal an eight out of 10. Uh, they're very social as a lot of whales are. Right. A lot of whales travel in pods. Narwhals are no exception. They live in pods that can be up to hundreds, maybe even a thousand narwhals at a time. Um, and then within the pods, there are these really complex social structures and hierarchies. So like, especially like males, because pods are often separated by sex. So the female narwhals will swim with the young. And then once the young males grow into like more adulthood, they'll split off and go swim with the males. So you'll have kind of male and female pods. Didn't we come across this recently with a different marine mammal this is a pretty common i think setup for like whale social structures that like the females will swim in like nurseries and then the males will kind of go do right. their own thing until it's breeding time okay. and everybody comes together maybe humpbacks yeah narwhals make beautiful vocalizations mm. um they make the whistles and squeaks and clicks that you would expect from things like dolphins or belugas also will make these really charming little whist- whistles and squeaks and these are amplified and focused by the melon. Mm. So the melon is the part of these. I, I think it's only in toothed whales, but you see this uh, really exaggerated in the beluga whale. Mm. Beluga has this very, very prominent melon. And the melon is the big bulbous part of the forehead. You see it in a dolphin, too. In a beluga whale, it's just particularly prominent. This is just like a big fat sack basically (laughs) it's it's an organ in the front of their head that is just full of like lipids and wax and what that's for is amplifying and and focusing sound the fats inside are not digestible the the lipids inside the melon are actually toxic and can't be digested so uh, you wouldn't see the same effects of like starvation or emaciation on the melon but so it's not like a fat store no, it's yeah. not fat storage. Mm-hmm. It's they need that and they mm-hmm. cannot do anything else with it. It's not like a an emergency Snickers bar right. sitting on front of their head. Um, but so the vocalizations are actually mostly used for echolocation. So they uh, make these little clicks and whistles and squeaks, and then they listen very, very closely for the echoes that bounce back. And when the echoes bounce back, that tells them things like what's around them, how far away it is, where it's positioned. It gives them kind of like a 3D image of the world that they're swimming through. So what's really useful about using sound to navigate instead of vision is that they spend so much time in the dark Mm. because they do swim down into the twilight zone. They spend a lot of time swimming under sea ice where like not a lot of light is making it down there. Mm -hmm. So it's really useful that they're navigating so much based on sound rather than sight because a lot of times they're not able to use sight anyway. So another thing this is really, really useful for using echolocation instead of vision is finding uh, holes in the ice oh which they need to survive yeah and actually that is becoming more of a problem with climate change as the as the movement of the ice 
in the polar ice cap region is like shifting a little more unpredictably. They don't always necessarily know where those gaps in the ice are going to be, or those gaps in the ice could close up a lot quicker than they think they're going to. And what you end up with is narwhals getting trapped. Mm. So narwhals will kind of skip from like breathing hole to breathing hole to get deeper, you know, into the, under the ice. But then if they get down there and then the holes close up behind them, they can't get back mm-hmm. and they're trapped. They're stranded and then they can drown. Right. Um, which is a normal thing. Like these are called entrapments and they happen normally for narwhals, but it's becoming more of mm. a problem as like sea ice is getting more unpredictable over time. So kind of a problem that is getting worse over time. Um, I mentioned this earlier, but narwhals do migrate seasonally hmm. in in a really interesting way. So like other whales, they do, you know, stay up north in the summer and then come south for the winter. But for them, coming south is still only like Greenland. Right. Like it's still very, very, very far north. But for them, that is like coming south for the winter. So what this results in is them being on this opposite feeding schedule from most other whales in the world. So for most whales, they will be, you know, up north in the summer, and that's when they do all of their feeding. And then um, in the winter, they'll go south, and then they'll just kind of coast on everything they ate in the summer Mm. for the winter. Narwhals, since they spend their summers, like, way far up north in like the deep like far 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 north reaches of the arctic there's nothing there (laughs) for them to really eat there's really Mm. not a lot of food there so they spend their summers mating and that's really it they don't really eat very much over the summer Mm. so then in the winter when they come down into like the greenland and canada area that's when they're doing all of their eating Mm. because they've moved into what is normally the summer range for other whales. But those whales went even farther south. So by the time the narwhals come down for the winter, the other whales have also migrated, leaving them with no competition. So then they can kind of clean up shop. Nice. (laughs) I thought that was really cool. Like (laughs) it's basically like adapting to such a far North climate, let them completely avoid like overlapping ranges with like other whales that might be competing with them. So an interesting ecological strategy, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I thought that was all very, very cool. Finally, aesthetics for the narwhal. Uh, I'm giving them a six out of 10. (laughs) I mean, they're cute. I can't give them a ton else. Other than that, um, I, I will say I've never seen one in person. Right. I probably never will. But I do think they look kind of goofy. They have really, really short stubby fins. And their tail flukes are kind of shaped weird. They're like convex instead of concave like most other whale flukes are. Hmm. But they're just like short and stubby. Like everything about them is very round, <laughs> which is cute. It's certainly cute. Uh-huh. Uh, but then when you just tack on that absolute unit of a tusk sticking straight out the front, and the fact that it sticks straight out is so silly because most other animals with tusks, there's a curve to them. Sure. Almost always. Not with a narwhal. They're like, nope, it's going to go straight out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then, and I was, can't, I can't decide whether it would look goofier or better if it curved like other tusks because i feel like if it curved that would be too much i'm betting it's a hydrodynamic thing 
Yeah, probably is. Yeah. The way like like marlins and, and swordfish have it sticking straight out the front. Yeah. I wonder, though, if I were to come across a narwhal without a tusk, for whatever reason, if I would even recognize it as a narwhal. I mean, I don't think I would. I do want to talk about some mythological tie-in to the narwhal horn. So I've seen a lot of people say that narwhals inspired the mythology of the unicorn. Okay. This is not how I would describe the connection, but there is a connection between the narwhal and unicorn mythology. Hmm. It definitely didn't originate like the myth of the unicorn. So the unicorn legend originated with the Greek historian Titius. Titius in about 400-ish BCE, he wrote a book called Indica, and that was one of the only Greek books about India at the Mm. time. So this book was based on things that Titius had heard from merchants and envoys who had been to India and then came back and talked about it in the court where where Titius was. So it's all secondhand knowledge. He'd never been to India at all. Okay. (laughs) He wrote this book about it based on what he had heard, which is already right off the bat. So good. I I feel like if you ever suffer with imposter syndrome (laughs) and you feel like, oh, am I the right person to be doing? I I don't think I'm good enough. I don't think. No. Think of Titius, who's like, I've never been to India. I bet I could write a whole book about it. (laughs) I love that. Hilarious. So already you're getting some, you know, game of telephone sort of information in this book so uh he described wild asses which are like donkeys basically Mm -hmm. with horns in the middle of their forehead Hmm. he was probably talking about rhinoceroses (laughs) which live in india and there were like some other thing he included like people drinking out of their horns which is a practice with rhinoceros horns so like he was almost certainly talking about rhinoceroses okay which he had also never seen. <laughs> so he didn't know what he was talking about. And he was talking about them to other people who even less knew what he was talking about. So just over time, periodically, uh, the legend just like kind of stuck. Mm. And then just like people started adding on to it over time as they would repeat it and like add their own details to it. So just over time, it just evolves and evolves and evolves. And eventually you wind up with the legend of a horse with a horn and so people usually didn't know that unicorns as they were imagining them were not physically real Mm -hmm. people did not know that they thought they were just very very rare oh yeah so a lot of people legitimately had no idea that they were just like a mythological creature they thought it was just like a rare animal that isn't seen very often so traders from Uh, far north like scandinavia would cash in on this misconception by selling them narwhal tusks and telling them they were unicorn horns yes okay so they're like oh like this was like medieval europeans were like obsessed with unicorns because they'd never seen one and thought they were a mysterious rare animal and also never seen a narwhal before they would just eat it right up right they would just buy these narwhal tusks Mm -hmm. think they were unicorn horns and then eventually over time you start seeing in medieval art you start seeing unicorns depicted with 
narwhal tusk horns. Mm. So that's how we ended up with the unicorn depiction of being a horse with this this like straight spiral sure. horn comes from a grift. <laughs> we got scammed into the modern unicorn. <laughs> but the, the the mythos of the unicorn already existed. Sure. And then the narwhal's tusk. Influenced the design. Influenced the design, yes. It was not the basis of the of the unicorn myth, but mm. it uh was it had a hand on the ball, basically. They might not necessarily be the uh, basis of European unicorn mythology, but they do have uh, their own role in Inuit mythology. Oh, nice. There's an Inuit myth that a woman was killed by her son by being tied to a white whale that dragged her underwater and that her long braided hair turned into the tusk of the narwhal. And that's how narwhals got their tusk. Interesting. So, yeah. And there are like variations on this story. I couldn't get like a definitive, like, I mean, I don't think there is a definitive, you know, as with any sure. sort of folk story, you're going to get a lot of like versions of the story. But the gist of it is that uh, this woman's braided hair turned into the tusk of the narwhal. Hmm. Um, and finally, to wrap up for the narwhal, for their conservation status, the IUCN does list them as least concern, but there are significant threats to their population. Hmm. Their biggest threat is climate change. I mentioned that the climate change is affecting the patterns of the ice that they swim under, in addition to causing like these shifting entrapments where narwhals are not able to navigate under the ice as well as they usually do and getting getting trapped and drowning. Uh, the ice coverage is shrinking, which they rely on to hide from predators. So they hide under the ice from orcas, polar uh, bears, oh, stuff okay. like that. They do share ranges with these larger predators, but narwhals can dive for longer than orcas can. So usually narwhals Narwhals can go under the ice and stay there for long enough that the orcas can't chase them. They have to come back up for air. Okay, I see. So, you know, with less ice coverage, narwhals are more vulnerable to predation. Ice coverage is is kind of their biggest defense and they're losing it. But in addition to that, they also suffer from ocean noise pollution. Really? Yeah, because they rely on sound to navigate so much. They rely on echolocation to hear the things around them and get around. Um, the Arctic Ocean is a hotspot for oil and gas drilling. So oh. as that's going on, but also like commercial vessels that have to navigate that area to like support oil and gas drilling, it causes just like tons and tons of noise in the ocean. And then the narwhals can't rely on their echolocation as much to navigate. So all of these things can be huge disruptions for life for narwhals. It's kind of hard to study them because they spend so much time either way out in the open ocean where it's really difficult to keep an eye on what they're doing or hiding under the ice in these giant pods where like it's it's kind of difficult to have an idea of like how many there are and how their numbers are doing. But, you know, definitely things to to keep in mind when you're promoting stewardship for our oceans it's a it's a charming and delightful creature i learned so much more about them than i expected to they're wonderful that's awesome and they're real they really do exist <laughs> this may come as a surprise to many of you but uh, i'm very happy for the lucky ten thousand today very nice yeah let's take a quick break to hear from our friends on the max fun network and then let's get to your animal mm-hmm 
I'm Ify Wadiway, the host of Maximum Film. I'm Alonzo Duralde, also the host of Maximum Film. And I'm Drea Clark, yet another host of Maximum Film. Every week, we host Huddle Up, usually with an illustrious guest, and we talk about films. We have film news. We have film quizzes. We answer your film questions. It's like the maximum amount of film talk. That's why we call it Maximum Maximum Film. Maximum Film, the movie podcast that's not just a bunch of straight white guys. New episodes weekly on MaximumFun.org. It could happen to you. You're all grown up now, a professional adult with diverse interests and hobbies. And one of those hobbies is video games. You just can't help it. They're so good now. If that's you, we're here to tell you, you are completely normal. I'm Maddie Myers. I'm Jason Schreier. And I'm Kirk Hamilton. And together we form Triple Click, a podcast about video games. If you think you might be a person who likes video games, we hope you'll give Triple Click a listen. Triple Click, new episodes every Thursday on Maximum Fun. So, my love, what animal do you bring this week? I say that like I don't (laughs) know because I demanded it. (laughs) <laughs> i bring the japanese macaque yes scientific name makaka great one more time makaka mm, i'm not gonna say anything fuscata no <laughs> i gotta hear the whole thing let me get a clean take makaka fuscata wow mm-hmm. it means no worries <laughs> for the rest of your days <laughs> incredible this is probably a good time to mention i grew up with a spanish-speaking grandmother (laughs) (laughs) so when you hear when you hear the word macaca yeah that's close enough spectacular anyway this species was submitted by you (laughs) it was okay this is one of my favorite animals in the world Uh i love this animal we have not gotten to talk about it yet it's been on my list of animals it was like when we were like brainstorming the concept of the podcast this was like (laughs) i made a little list of like animals i want to talk about and this was on it it's high pressure i figured this would be a great time for it because of how like we've had a real cold snap sure it's been the temperature has been really really cold throughout most of the u.s yes it's worth mentioning another name for these are snow monkeys yes so i just thought this would be a a good time for it when people need to hear it yes and i'll be getting my information from animal diversity web as well as the wisconsin national primate research center found at primate.wisc.edu so like i mentioned also known as snow monkeys are they called arctic monkeys no darn I was going to hope that the band was named after them. (laughs) Or at least I didn't come across that name. Uh, That would make Googling them very difficult. Imagine. (laughs) The males average 11.3 kilograms and 57 centimeters long, which is 25 pounds and 1.9 feet. That's a little small. But these are monkeys. They're actual monkeys. Not apes. Right. Okay. And their females average 8.4 kilograms and 52.3 centimeters, which is 19 pounds and 1.7 feet. So the males are larger. Okay. They have thick fur that ranges from brown and gray to yellowish brown, and their face and posterior are reddish pink. They are like (laughs) the brightest, just like the most red and pink Mm -hmm. you can imagine. They also have a short stumpy tail. It's adorable. Now, as the common name might allude to, they are natively found in Japan. Are they only found in Japan? 
natively. Okay. Oh, you said that so ominously? <laughs> I have more about that a little bit. But in Japan, they are found in the three most southern main islands of Japan's four. And those are Honshu, Shikoku, and Kyushu, and a few other smaller islands. So they, they are not in the most northern island of the four. I thought they were. The ones that they are in still get pretty cold. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, and Japan is actually well known for the amount of snowfall they get. They belong to the taxonomic family Cercopithecidae, which is the old world monkeys. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Uh, notable relatives in there include baboons, other macaques, mandrills, and proboscis monkeys. I can for sure see the resemblance with like mandrills. Mm-hmm. Yep. They look like a little baboon. A little bit, okay. <laughs> I'll jump right into our first category of effectiveness. I'm giving a full 10 out of 10. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, how could you not? Just look at the little thing. <laughs> so they are arboreal and terrestrial, meaning they can be found climbing in trees and on the ground. But what's interesting is females spend more time in trees, whereas males spend more time on the ground. Really? Yeah. They are mostly quadrupedal when on the ground. Uh, they are very well adapted for the cold, as their other common name might suggest. <laughs> so they live further north than any other non-human primate. Really? Yes. Oh, so they're really earning the name, the snow monkey title. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess I don't really think of monkeys as being very like cold dwelling. Like You typically think of monkeys as being in sort of the more tropical regions of the world. Mm-hmm. And the colder the climate they live in, the thicker their fur. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, the the monkeys that are in the furthest northern regions of their range will have thicker fur than those in the southernmost region. That makes sense. You get ones that look like they're just, like, wearing a big, thick, like, <laughs> big fur coat. Like, right. they, they look like they're just all bundled up mm-hmm. all the time. They are good swimmers. What? Yes. Oh, okay. They can swim over half a kilometer, which is about a quarter mile. That's over 10 times the length of an Olympic pool. So 10 laps in a big pool. That's more than I could swim. (laughs) And they're generally very good at adapting to their environment. So their range in Japan goes from subtropical forest to subarctic mountainous regions. Mm, They are undaunted. Mm -hmm. Anywhere. I was thinking about like monkeys swimming and like monkeys aren't typically... They're usually like okay at swimming, but swimming isn't usually like a mode of transportation for most monkeys, I well, think. And plus, you know, when we talk about the larger like apes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, those are usually too dense to swim, right? Oh, true. Yeah, they're pretty solidly yeah. built. <laughs> Not exactly built for buoyancy. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, a question I had early on when gathering information about this is how did they get to Japan? That's true. It is <laughs> not exactly connected. Right. To the rest of Asia. But it used to be. Oh, I yes. see. So on the scale of millions of years ago, Japan was part of mainland Asia, and then tectonic plates moved, and then it separated, opening the Sea of Japan. Mm. That was long before these guys came around, though. Oh. <laughs> so what, what happened was ancestral populations are thought to have colonized Japan 380,000 to 440,000 years ago, when Japan was connected to the Asian mainland by land bridges, particularly during glacial periods due to lower sea levels. Oh, okay. Yes. So they just kind of got in early. Mm-hmm. Took the land bridges across. Right. Interesting. So after the Sea of Japan had already formed, but during glacial periods when land bridges were available. I guess that would mean that they would have had to have already been adapted to the cold at that point in order to cross over. True. 
This comes from a paper titled Evolution and Dispersal of Three Closely Related Macaque Species in the Eastern Asia. And that article was by Juihu Chu, Yao Sun Lin, and Hai Yin Wu. That was in a 2006 article from Molecular Phylogenetics and Evolution. Nice. Yeah. That sounds like a very interesting paper. It was very... Primate uh, evolution is a wild ride. Yeah. So it was talking about these three macaques and how they drifted apart from each other. Mm. So this one ended up in Japan. One of the other ones ended up in Taiwan. Uh, I don't recall where the third ended up. Now, I mentioned they are natively found in Japan. Yeah, let's hear it. (laughs) There is a population in Texas in the United States. No, okay. (laughs) (laughs) For a second, I felt like... I felt like my brain was glitching because <laughs> he said Texas, and that was at the bottom of the list of places right. I thought you were about to say. Yes. Very different climate. Yeah. So th- the reason this happened, a problematic group of macaques were moved from Kyoto suburbs to Texas in the 70s to what is now a primate sanctuary. Okay. Yes. But it wasn't a primate sanctuary when they got put there? I have found differing tellings of this story. Oh, there's some drama. What seems to have happened was a concerned United States citizen said, let me take these monkeys off your hands for you. Uh, Fascinating. (laughs) What an interesting idea. Yes. I couldn't find very many details about this, but what it seems like was a private collection turned into a sanctuary for primates that the kind of sanctuary that would take in monkeys from other private collections and circuses and that kind of thing. Okay. All right. All right. But But today that sanctuary is the kind of sanctuary that isn't open to the public. It's huge. It's a very large area for the primates to live in. Uh, But yeah, surprisingly, you know, Texas, for those unfamiliar, very different habitat than (laughs) Japan. Yeah. Uh, More arid, hot. Doesn't typically snow there, right? Yeah. I know the very northern parts of Texas can get snow, sure. and, you know, especially in the past couple of years. Yeah. But you mentioned that, like, the macaques are really adaptable. Yes. So I guess I this sounds like a testament mm-hmm. to their resilience and that they can really slot in anywhere. There's also some reports of a wild population still. <laughs> like a feral population yes. of Japanese macaques in Texas. Yes. So, like, dealing with... Scorpions and snakes and cactuses and all this. Oh gosh, yeah. This <laughs> of all of the places in the United States mm-hmm. to like become suddenly transplanted. Right. That is one of the most hostile. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although this is another one of those. Take it with a grain of salt. Couldn't find you know a ton sure. of re- reliable information about this. Yeah. Now they are generalist omnivores. Mm. So they eat plants, fruits, seeds, fungus, insects, soil. Anything. Anything goes. <laughs> down the hatch. I wish I had a little bit more time to look into the soil part, but. <laughs> just, you ever just eat dirt? Uh, another thing I was curious about, because there was some early on things referencing predators. Mm-hmm. What, what are their predators in Japan? Uh, so one there are feral dogs. Um, that used to be a bigger problem, but it is more well managed now in Japan. Mm-hmm. The mountain hawk eagle. Oh, wow. Yeah. Monkeys and eagles have mad beef. Like- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's related to um, a hawk eagle that lives in the Philippines, actually. And raccoon dogs. With the raccoon dogs, it's a, especially a thing with the infants of the macaques that can fall prey to those. Mm, poor yeah. babies. 
Uh, also, human interactions, they are somewhat of a pest. Okay, I believe it. <laughs> In urban areas. I mean, they're so smart. Yes. And they're so, like, little and nimble mm-hmm. that they can just, like, get into stuff. It's like a hyped-up toddler. Yeah. It's like if you had a toddler with a little jetpack <laughs> and could just get, like, onto the roof of your house. Sure. They're pretty good at climbing. So, moving on to our second category of ingenuity, I'm going to get 9 out of 10. So, one of the things they're most famously known for. My favorite thing in the world. They will use thermal springs during winter to stay warm. So, this is in areas where they have springs that are heated by geothermal processes, like nearby volcanoes, that kind of thing. It's worth mentioning Japan is near the Ring of Fire in the Pacific Ocean. There's so many volcanoes. (laughs) Volcanoes everywhere. Yeah. You can't throw a stone without hitting a volcano. <laughs> so um, lots of you know volcanic activity in parts of Japan. So in the parts that have these thermal springs, and especially ones that have been modified by humans to have a temperature suitable for humans, mm-hmm. they're known to use these thermal springs themselves. Yeah, it heats up the water. Yeah. Like the heat from the, I guess, underground magma. Sure. Heats up the water and mm-hmm. you get a nice hot bath. Yeah. A naturally occurring hot bath, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which sounds heavenly. <laughs> that sounds amazing. So I would say nine out of ten pictures on the internet of these of these guys are usually in or around a hot spring. That's all I want to look at. <laughs> That's all I want to see. Yeah. It is unbearably cute. The way that they just... And they have this look of serenity when they get in the water. Mm-hmm. They just have this expression like they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you think... That they would get along with capybaras. I bet. Like the the macaques and the capybaras just like chilling, like vibing, enjoying a bath together. Yeah, I bet. Uh, they also use vocalizations, particularly to warn of predators. Mm. Uh, they do live in groups, sometimes as large as 161 individuals. A hot tub party. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do all, you know, primate things, uh, you know, social grooming, family structures, you name it. They've been observed playing with rocks. Playing with rocks? Yeah. In what capacity? Just kind of throwing them around, having fun. Oh. So it was interesting. They noticed this in species that were getting a lot of human food. Oh. So that they didn't, they, they weren't having to spend as much time for foraging and collecting food. Oh. But then as that source of food dried up for whatever reason, then they could no longer spend time playing with rocks. Huh. That's interesting. Right. So they were able to like refocus their efforts. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a message in there. (laughs) (laughs) Eat fast food. Play with rock. That's not it. (laughs) That's what I choose to take away from it. (laughs) I think there's a message in there about uh, hustle culture. (laughs) The grind set. (laughs) Why work hard when can play with rock? Push away hustle, except hot tub. (laughs) Um... During the winter, they will huddle together to stay warm while sleeping. It's so cute. Mm -hmm. Everything they do, everything they do is the cutest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) They're just little, they're just little guys. Um, For aesthetics, give it an 8 out of 10. What? How could you do this to me? What? What's not to lie? I fail to see anything wrong with these little guys. For me, primates... A lot of times, delve into the uncanny valley. Not this one. <laughs> it's the face. It's the no, face it isn't. A bit. 
<laughs> they're so they have the most perfect little monkey face. Well, I guess you should have reviewed this one. <laughs> <laughs> they're so cute <laughs> they are cute and they are soft yes those are my two bullets so cute and soft that's it yes i definitely <laughs> see that the selling features of this animal <laughs> i've never touched one and like i said probably never will do not but i can imagine i feel like if i touched one my hand would disappear mm. into all of the fluff and fur mm-hmm Wrapping it up, conservation status, least concern. Some of the problems, though, is that they can be habituated to humans fairly easily. I feel like I'm part (laughs) of the problem. (laughs) Yeah. So then they'll kind of get into areas that, you know, are heavily populated by humans. And they're also Japan's third worst crop pest. Really? Yes. Behind wild boars and deer. Oh, man. (laughs) Compared to wild boars and deer, macaques, I could see... You know, maybe they don't need as much, need to take as much food as boar and deer, mm-hmm. but they're like good at figuring stuff out. So, like, you need to kind of stay one step ahead of them because macaques are very like mischievous and, mm. and, and it's the thumbs. It's the thumbs. They got those thumbs. <laughs> Deeply problematic. Yeah. I will say, you know, because of the macaques being in Japan for so long is they're deeply ingrained in the Japanese culture and folklore. For sure. My favorite Japanese macaque in uh, pop culture, in media, is the uh, monkey from Kubo and the Two Strings. I'm trying to remember it. She's one of the main characters. She was voiced by Charlize Theron. She looked like this. Oh, yeah. She was so cool. Oh, that's right. Okay, now I remember. Don't spoil anything yeah, about the movie because yeah, it's yeah, such yeah. a good movie and everybody should watch it. But um, you know what else I remembered? What the confusion of the actual number of strings on that instrument? Um, <laughs> it's every time, every time we cannot think about this movie, which is like an amazing, beautiful movie, without Christian complaining about the misrepresented number of strings <laughs> the metaphor was lost on me uh, yeah clearly <laughs> obviously there was a snow monkey in that movie and she was very very cute yes um but you don't have to look very far to find them in lots of other japanese media for sure i feel like their vibe is so you just like very chill and relaxed and like to just like hang out in the hot springs and just like relax and stay bundled up and cozy and warm. Yeah. But also with like this little devious side, (laughs) it's like also a little mischievous. You know what I mean? That's very you. It's the duality of man. I think I'll, I'll steal the villagers crops. I know you will watch me. (laughs) (laughs) You're also my number three crop. best. (laughs) Give me the radishes. (laughs) Thank you, darling. That was wonderful. Anytime. I love this animal. I'm so glad to know that they live in Texas for some reason. (laughs) I hope I did them justice for you. Mm, I think you could have been a little more generous in the aesthetics department, but you know what? It's not my segment. It's okay. Uh, if you liked what you heard today, uh, we would love it if you would come hang out with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Discord. Links to everything will be in the episode description. Leave us a good review. 
on your podcatcher. We would really like that. Like the five-star review that we received from somebody whose username is Wow Wow Yo, <laughs> and said, best, I love how you rate your animal. Love it. To the point. Spectacular. Thank you. So, yeah, you know, if you have an animal that you'd like to hear us talk about on the show, send me an email. My email address is ellen at just the zoo of us dot com. Head on over to MaximumFun.org to learn more about the network and the other shows on it and how you can support our show and keep us going and growing, surviving and thriving. Mm-hmm. I guess this is our last episode of 2022. It is. Ending on a high note, I feel. It's been a great year of growth. It has been a great year. So thank you all for coming along this journey with us. Uh, thank you, Louis Ong, for our beautiful, amazing theme music. Mm-hmm. I, a lot of people have let me know that they, uh, like, in some way dance along or respond to the theme music. And if you're doing that, keep doing it. It's very fun. And mm-hmm. I love it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's all. Talk to you all later. See you next year. Oh God! <laughs> when we come, when we record our next episode, Christian's gonna be like, "I haven't seen you since last year." Mm, I wasn't, but now I am. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.